I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center here at the Kennedy School. And I want to welcome you all to this brown bag lunch with Eric Altman. Please, you can sit at the table. Um, I doubt that uh, Eric needs any introduction to this group, but I, I was struck as I was looking over his bi biography about <coughs> if you didn't know Eric, of course, uh, and you just were listening to a litany of the titles of his books, you would have a pretty good idea of, uh, of what he's about. I'd like to just read you uh, these, because it really sort of, you know, uh, we'll get to his most recent book in a moment. Uh, what Liberal Media, The Truth About Bias in the News, The Book on Bush, How George W. Misleads America, uh, President's Lie, A History of Official Deception and Its Consequences, His Sound and Fury, The Making of the Punditocracy, uh, which won the 1992 George Orwell Award, uh, It Ain't No Sin to Be Glad You're Alive, The Promise of Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> which is the only Anomalous, uh, anomalous title I can find in all of your books, Eric. I don't know. Uh, I can make a case for it. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that, uh, and there are others, the point is that Eric is not only a, a, a scholar and uh, observer and, and critic of the media, he has been uh, a scholar and observer and a critic of more than that, of, of democratic institutions, of our democracy in particular, of the way government works. His new title is uh, Kubuki Democracy, the System versus Barack Obama. Uh, it is a book, I think, that, um, well, I'm sure Eric will be talking about it, but it is a book that is goes well beyond the issue of whether Barack Obama um, is, you know, doing what he said he would do. It is something that is much more penetrating and much more... Um, broadly focused in its analysis of our government and our democracy and how and why it might function as it does and how it might function better. Uh, Eric is uh, on the faculty at uh, CUNY in New York and uh, Brooklyn uh, College. He is a, a professor, a distinguished professor of English and Journalism, Brooklyn College and CUNY Graduate School of Journalism and his friend. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Shorenstein Center. Thank you very much, Alex. He's also known as the thirstiest man in America. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be auctioning these off. This is all vodka, <laughs> That would be Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> no, Scotch. Uh, true. Um, thank you, Alex. It's, it's an honor to be here. Uh, I always, whenever I, this is my third lunchtime talk I've given here for one of my books. Um, the first one, my goodness, uh, next year will be the 20th anniversary of that. Uh, so I'm getting, I'm, I've been doing this for a while now. Um, I'm always, uh, I always, uh, something always happens in one of these talks that, um, that, you know, changes the way I think about things. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. One time I gave a talk here and I was quoting someone who had influenced the work of the, the book that I had just written. And I, and I had never heard of the guy. And I said, I don't know who he is, but he has this argument here. And, then, and he was sitting right here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I also, before I, I finish, and I'm always uh, excited to speak before such a distinguished audience, but I have to point out uh, one uh, 
distinguished member of the audience today that I'm really honored to see, and that's the great Charles M. Pierce of the Boston Globe. So, anyway, uh, so as I said, I, I've, uh, I've given three of these talks. The first talk was for my first book, which came out in 92, and it was called Sound and Fury, and it was a history of um, punditry. I still think it's the only history of punditry. Um, uh, it identified a couple of problems with the effect that uh, what I called the punditocracy, by the way, I, I coined a word, and it's in the OED, punditocracy. So you should coin words, because when I die, that word will live on. It's really the only thing about me that I know will my, my daughter will live on, too. But that's a more of a mixed legacy than being in the OED. And someone at the OED really liked me, because they used my name in the example. So they, they took an example from the review. So I am actually will be in the OED. Assuming, I mean, the OED will exist in some form. Um, in any case, uh, that book was written, uh, as I said, it came out uh, during the 1992 election, just before talk radio became really important. You remember uh, Rush Limbaugh um, was the guest of the uh, congressional class of 1994 um, for uh, the State of the Union in 1995. Uh, I guess the congressional class of 1995 that, that was elected in 1994 in that in that um, tidal wave of an, of an election, and so it, I was. Um, I guess when you get old, you always end up saying this. But, you know, I was complaining about something that today looks like a golden era, from the <laughs> perspective of um, the, pro the the very problems that I was identifying. I couldn't, of course, predict. Uh, where things were going, but the <coughs> problems that I identified in that book with regard to the perversion of our public discourse as a result of the, um, the weaknesses of uh, what I named, according to the OED, the punitocracy, um, have, have, have metastasized since then and form a part, uh, significant part of my argument in this current book, which is out 20 years later, um, or 19 years later. The second time I was invited here, the first talk I think predated Alex. Yes. Yes. Um, the second time I was invited here, Alex invited me to talk about my book, What Liberal Media. And um, and that book too um, came out in two thousand three. Um, and uh, and the problems I identified in that book having to do with, um, I mean, uh, cable news was already a factor then. And obviously, talk radio was. Uh, the internet was basically Matt Drudge in those days. Uh, and so that was, Drudge is in the book, but nothing like what we would be talking about today if we were talking about the, the <coughs> sort of media ecosphere. But again, uh, that book um, identified problems which uh, have gotten much, much worse for reasons that. Uh, Amazingly, given the scope of the problems, none of us were really aware of in 2003, and that's the collapse of the business model of the mainstream media. So again, uh, it was it was it's kind of a luxury to have a mainstream media of that size and scope to criticize, as I did in 2003, because that the the the, the weakness <coughs> of, um, of of losing uh, 30 to 40 percent of the Washington Post. Uh, similar, uh, about half the Los Angeles Times, um, 
significant parts of the Wall Street Journal that were then later corrupted by the purchase of it by uh, Rupert Murdoch, and uh, and I guess quite a lot of the Boston Globe as well. Um, I, I don't have a figure on that, but maybe somebody else does. But um, these newspapers uh, will survive in some fashion. Uh, my, my, I guess I, I wrote a long piece in the New Yorker a couple of years ago um, the, called The Death and Life of the American Newspaper. Um, I think it was 2008 it came out. And uh, I predicted that um, we would end up with something between a third and a half to what we, what we, were, what we had had going, going into this crisis in terms of actual reporting and presenting of news. Um, and, and the problem with that third and a half is that it, um, it's, it's in constant um, synthesis with the part that's grown up to replace it, which on the one hand is largely dominated by um, extremely conservative ideological forces, not entirely, but largely, that are not interested in truth, uh, that are they're not really news organizations. Um, and on the other hand, there's an awful lot that uh, we miss. I, I just I read the New York Times uh, uh, on the plane this morning, and I was just <coughs> looking at some of these stories, thinking, what would we what would we lose if we lost these stories? They were the kinds of stories that didn't they're they're, they're not covered anywhere else. They're, they're, I, I wish I had it in front of me, but there was a couple. That, there was one about a, a, a little girl who was repeatedly raped in Texas. Incredible story containing very powerful and important truths about things that most people would prefer to ignore, that just, there's no room for those stories. Um, mm -hmm. It's okay. <laughs> I, I, I got the gist there. I mean, you could, look at the, you could look at the Times almost any day, and you'll find on the front page two or three of these stories. Uh, in the Washington Post, you might find one every few days now. Um, and I don't see the LA Times or the Boston Globe often enough, but... Uh, believe me, if they were in, if they were in uh, abroad, you won't you wouldn't see these at all. Now, that's part of the problem that I'm going to be talking about. It's not it's 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 a it's a kind of corollary to my thesis. I'm talking about it because of where I am. But um, this in this new book, which is called Kabuki Democracy, um, everybody always asks me why do you call it Kabuki Democracy? And at a place at a great university, I should actually apologize for calling it Kabuki Democracy because I'm told that I'm doing injustice to the word Kabuki. <laughs> I'm, I'm using it in a way that it's understood by most people, but it shouldn't be, which is a, a pet peeve of mine in life, so I really feel guilty about that, but I found out about it too late. Um, but the implication of the, of the uh, term that I use is, is to imply that actually we've reached a point where we're going through the motions of democracy, where we're imitating democracy, where we're somewhere up on that stage you can see people acting as if they're, they're, they're practicing democracy when in fact the substance <coughs> is all but gone. And I make this argument um, because uh, it seems to me that I, I usually give a slightly longer version of this part of it, but I can't really see uh, anyone more intelligent uh, more honest, more sophisticated about the world, and, and more progressive getting elected president than Barack Obama. I mean, uh, I was, uh, part of it was I was personally charmed by the man, but if you look at his record and you look at his past and you look at all that he brought to this uh, election, 
particularly given his background and his name, it's kind of a, it, it's, it's almost a miracle that the man somehow became president of the United States. I mean, the idea that, I, I, I mean, I, I, I did, I got invited to dinner with Barack Obama in early 2005, and it was a small dinner, and I sat next to him, and I had no opinion of him, really, before I hadn't, I didn't, the speech he gave at that convention, I didn't actually see it, so I can't say whether I didn't. I played poker. Mm -hmm. And um, and I came away from that dinner just sort of blown away by uh, by his intelligence, but also his self-confidence. Because he was someone, I mean, it, it made a difference, I suppose, that he was a few months younger than I was, which, you know, is a, something I guess everybody goes through, but I didn't mm -hmm. like it. I didn't like it any more than when I, when I worked at Rolling Stone, and I had never heard the band on the cover. Mm -hmm. Like, these are milestones in my life I could do without. But um, if you remember, in 2005, when, when Bush somehow won that election, despite everything, liberals were all saying to themselves, well, it's just not our country. You know, these religious people don't trust us. And it doesn't matter that our candidate was smarter than their candidate and clearly better able to do a job, do, able to do a better job. And that most of the public agreed with us on most of the issues. They just didn't trust John Kerry because he didn't, he didn't believe the way they believed. Um, and Obama at this dinner, uh, he said, you know, I, I'm not really worried about this religion thing. I, ha I got that. I can handle that. Which, everyone's like, what do you mean you can handle that? How can you handle it? Don't worry about that. That's not what I want to talk about. And he wanted to talk about um, an economic message uh, that he could give to people who were losing their jobs in Illinois. No one at that time imagined that he would be running for president anytime soon. It was, it was unthinkable that someone, A, this liberal, B, this color, and C, with the name Barack Hussein Obama, would be president. Um, and I, I remember leaving that dinner thinking that maybe my daughter, who uh, in 2005 would have been uh, young, <laughs> um, I guess eight, she would have been eight. Not a math major. Um, that said she might one day see uh, a man like this as president. Um, and that was one uh, thought I had when uh, I thought about writing this book. And the second thought I had was, um, I don't know about you, I have trouble watching the news on television. I, it, 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 the, the pompousness of it on the one hand and the ridiculousness of it on the other hand just makes me angry. So I, I watch The Daily Show and The Colbert Report every morning, and I, I, get, I think I get most of what I need to see. And I get it in the context that, I can, that speaks to me, uh, that I can, I can live with. It doesn't make me angry, except in the ways it's supposed to make me angry. Um, and, and what I find uh, in, in that is that, um, you know, The Daily Show is a, it's a daily critique on the news, really. Uh, and, and so it mimics the, the sort of graph of the way the news is covered. And, and what I find is, like, you can get mad about a completely new thing every single day. You can find something exasperating and impossible to explain logically every <coughs> single day. It's kind of like what Harper's does at the beginning of the magazine when they have all those statistics. And every, like, statistic is something designed to drive you crazy. And then there's another one, and they have nothing to do with each other. And it, it, it ends up giving you a, a feeling of helplessness. Um, because there's just too many damn things going on that are that are impossible to, you know, that just you could spend your whole life trying to fix or bang your head against the wall about which. So I felt that there was a real, um, that, that 
although this was uh, this kind of thing is good therapy for people, um, and it's 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 in, in useful ways a corrective to much of what appears in the mainstream media. I, I remember Brian Williams was on uh, Stewart one night, and he said, "Sometimes I'll get the script, and I'll say." Why don't we not bother broadcasting this? Why don't we just send this right over to Stewart and let him? <laughs> and let him. <laughs> I mean, they know that they're doing it, and yet uh, it does keep them a little bit honest in certain respects. Um, but anyway, I felt like that. I felt like that there were all these um, there were all these issues that are permanent problems, that are permanent fixtures of our political discourse, that are treated as if they are. Uh, they just happened yesterday, and nobody could have possibly known about them. And and so tomorrow something else will happen, and we will have forgotten what happened yesterday. And yet the problem will be there, uh, as it was. And there are an awful lot of problems that are predictable that you know are going to happen, but that we don't. We act as if they're just come out of the sky. Um, the example for this I use in to describe to discuss at length is the uh, oil spill off the Gulf of Mexico. Um, uh, the year before uh, the oil spill, the uh, I'm going to get this wrong. W what's the name of the professional physical engineers organization? Do, do you remember? <laughs> um, you know, it's like it's not the Army Corps of Engineers, but it's like the American Association of the Civil, 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 Engineers. Civil Engineers. Yeah. Okay. So they issued this report card uh, the year before <coughs> on all of the nation's uh, net various networks uh, that are that are common to us, that it's the job of the uh, federal government to maintain. And th the average grade given was a C minus. And, uh, and the oil drilling uh, facilities, uh, I think they did better than that. They did all right. Uh, and then if, but if you look, if you take a look at the, uh, what was going on inside the MMS, uh, which is the body that regulates oil drilling, they actually had a, a scandal where people were dealing crystal meth from their offices. Uh, it, really, what is one to say about that? They, I mean, they were doing sort of the typical thing of going on vacation, hunting and fishing vacations that were paid for by the industry, and there was a lot of sex going on. Some of it was hookers, some of it was affairs between the people they were regulating. But they were also dealing crystal meth. And in fact, the only time that the MMS was ever mentioned in the mainstream media was for this crystal meth scandal. You know, nobody thought, well, what does this mean? There was not a single journalist on any mainstream publication assigned to cover this agency <coughs> on a regular basis. And uh, so if you, if you treat uh, a, an inherently dangerous and potentially destructive <coughs> business like oil drilling that way, you're going to get some sort of crisis. And, and, and again, that one wasn't even a C minus. They got like a, a C plus or a B minus or something. There are a lot of C minus and D's and F's out there that are waiting to explode in our faces, particularly since we just experienced eight years of the most ideologically obsessed, incompetent, and significant and politically corrupt uh, governance that we've had in the past century. And they were uh, ideologically obsessed in exactly the realm of using the government to protect the public from abuse by people who can profit from this kind of thing, which is how you get these problems. So the legacy of the Bush administration, um, combined with typical underinvestment and a lack of attention on the part of the media, meant that a crisis like that is going to happen, and many other crises like these are going to happen. I mean, God forbid anything like, uh, you know, anything like what happens in Japan happens here, you know, and we're not going to, 
things aren't going to go well. I mean, it's predictable on the basis of, uh, you know, Katrina was a model. The, the, the occupation of Iraq was a model. These are, this is how our government operates because this is the level of investment and attention we pay to. Um, and yet our media can't uh, incorporate that, that knowledge. Everything, again, is shocking and new as if who, who could have guessed it. Uh, the second problem that, uh, that I wanted to focus on in terms of uh, the difficulty of governing this country uh, is, is our antiquated political system, which I don't think I need to explain too much to people. I mean, we've, we've heard a lot about that, with the, how easy it is to filibuster um, and how easy it is to have an uh, a anonymous hold on a bill in the Senate. You don't have to filibuster anymore. You just have to say you're going to filibuster, and it works like a filibuster because nobody has the time for an actual filibuster. Um, and so you ended up last, uh, in the last congressional session with uh, 39 Republicans who, because of the vagaries of the way our country has worked itself out, represent only 29 to 33% of the population of the country. It just so happens that the most conservative parts of the country are the least populated parts of the country. So for instance, if you live in Wyoming, your vote for your senator is 12 times as powerful as if you live in California. So the liberal parts are the crowded parts, and the uncrowded parts are the conservative parts. And so we, when, you, when, when you had the requisite number for a filibuster uh, for the Republicans, you, never, you rarely had more than 33% of the population standing behind those senators. And yet the Republicans, who are much more disciplined uh, than Democrats, for good reasons, um, they understood at the beginning of the congressional session that the only power they had was the power to be entirely united. That they needed every single vote they had for a filibuster, and none of them would be powerful without that unanimity. And so they gave it to one another, regardless of whether or not they agreed with this policy or that policy. So they used it much more um, prodigiously, the, the, the power of obstruction, than it had ever been used before. Um, so. Those are two sort of fundamental foundational rules why, and I've actually, I now realize, done a bad job of introducing my thesis. My thesis was this, that you elected uh, a president who is, as I said, as impressive a, and progressive a figure as you could hope to elect in this country. You elected him with super majorities in both Congress, both houses of Congress which makes it kind of like a parliamentary election rather than a, than a, than a typical presidential election because we very, we very rarely have that situation where a president can actually uh, do what he's elected to do without a lot of horse trading, theoretically. Uh, and yet you didn't get what you voted for. You got a fraction of what <coughs> you voted for. You got uh, uh, the three issues that I pay most attention to are the health care <coughs> bill, the cap-and-trade legislation and the financial regulation form. Cap-and-trade, you got zero. Healthcare, you got some percentage, uh, maybe 50%. That would be generous <coughs> of what was promised in the campaign. And financial regulation, which is the one that should have been easiest because the country was united uh, and you knew who the villains were and they, they were very difficult to defend, you got maybe 20 to 30% of what was. So this is my argument that uh, if a country elects a president who, uh, with a supermajority of both houses uh, of Congress, and that president can't enact the policies that he promised during the campaign, well, something is fundamentally wrong with your system. Um, 
So again, rolling back a second, I just described two of the problems that uh, two, two of the fundamental problems. One of which was the hangover of the Bush legacy uh, and the need to deal with all these emergencies. The second one uh, is the antiquated nature of the Senate and the easiness of obstruction. And I would add to that ability to uh, obstruct the fact that conservatives who seek to obstruct uh, government action have an enormous advantage over progressives and liberals and that they Americans are naturally libertarian. It's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a tradition that goes all the way back to Thomas Paine and Henry David Thoreau. It was Thoreau who said the government governs best governs least. And Paine said something very similar. I can never remember the quote, but it sounds like that. And, and these are great liberal heroes. And of course, it's an obvious conservative talk about. So conservatives have a, have a, have a sort of uh, strong argument just by saying, oh, the government's going to screw this up. We better not let them get involved in our health care or tell us what, what our temperature could be and so forth. Anyway, those are not actually the two interesting points that I want to spend my time on. The two interesting points are the, the latter two parts of this component. I'm doing all right on time. I'll be done in 10 minutes. That's, that's <laughs> um, so point three. Everybody clear on my argument now? I did a bad job of laying out. Now, now we've caught up. We've caught up. Point three. Power of money. The power of money in our system is so um, pervasive and so powerful and uh, exist, it inserts itself in so many ways that it's actually pointless to discuss any issue at all without bringing in the role of money. And we almost never hear about it. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the culture of the power of money is so powerful that it almost makes it unnecessary and sometimes to deploy the actual power of money. But if you look at, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Gramscian point that I but that I think is made quite well by um, Simon Johnson and Paul Quack in their book, that they, the culture of finance is so powerful on Capitol Hill in our media discourse that, that you've, you've already won 50 to 60% of the battle when you don't have to make the argument, that everyone has internalized the argument. The kinds of things that Alan Greenspan was saying before the crisis that now look ridiculous that he has taken back, these were never questioned. These were these were these were truths that were considered to be cliches. Greenspan got his reputation as an oracle for saying things that um, that were self-evident at the time, but are now even Greenspan would disavow. No, I mean appeared self-evident. I don't mean were self. -evident. I, I don't think he's disavowed. Um, well, uh, that it depends which ones you mean, but he certainly has disavowed some of them, and those some of those were those were some of the ones that were thought to be self-evident. In any case, um, there's so there's that there's that power of finance, uh, which is just which is going to stand back and sort of notice it. But then there's another power of finance in terms of the way the culture of um, legislation works in these committees, which is that <coughs> virtually every single person who is employed by the uh, Senate Finance Committee or House Banking Committee is someone who has worked for a bank or will work for a bank. There's almost no professional staff on those committees. There's a, there's a maybe a, between 5 and 10 percent might have worked for Common Cause or one of those organizations. But by and large, everyone is in there. Uh, to get their experience. The same way 
after you go to law school, if you clerk for a Supreme Court justice, uh, you're on your way to being a, a big shot lawyer. You you do your time on the committee so that you can get hired uh, at between five and ten times what you earn working for that committee. A million dollars a year is not a lot of money for someone in a high position on uh, as staff who spent who's put in some time on one of those staffs. And there's no shame in it. There's no. It's just the way it is. It's 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 a, it's the natural career path of people who get certain kinds of degrees and then take certain kinds of jobs and amass certain kinds of influence and then move on to become lobbyists of the people who have replaced them. Now, we had a, a sort of a sad but in some ways beautiful symbol of this during the debate over the, um, the uh, financial regulation bill where the chairman of Barney Frank's staff went to work for Goldman Sachs during the negotiations. So the guy who was writing the legislation that regulated Goldman Sachs then took a job paid, I'm sure, in, in seven figures for Goldman Sachs. And again, I think that one Barney Frank got a little angry about. You know? <laughs> that one caught, caused a few raised eyebrows. But by and large, it was just a, a slightly exaggerated version, a, a speeded up version of how this world works. And, um, you know, if you, if you recall, I guess it's now seven or eight months ago when the final legislation was being written, the press did pay some attention to it uh, in, in its final process. It was kind of dramatic that it got passed, and it was actually a stronger piece of legislation than people expected at the time, in part because Goldman Sachs got indicted uh, by, uh, for some practices, and they settled later for not much money, but the indictment was actually, I think, a strategic move by the government to focus attention on this and strengthen the legislation a bit. But the legislation didn't deal with um, most of the uh, <coughs> problems that actually caused the financial crisis. The banks that were too big to fail are now, almost without exception, all bigger than they were <coughs> when the crisis began. And if they're too big to fail, I mean, what that means in real life is that if they can't fail, then they have to be rescued. And if they have to be rescued, that means they're not responsible for their losses. Because it, they're, they're, they're basically gambling with the house's money. If they win, they get to keep the money. And if they lose, well, something will have to happen so that they don't lose. Because the system can't allow it. And that's, an ex that's the sort of clearest and most obvious example. But there's any number of examples like that that are in the legislation. Um, and that's not even the worst part of it from the standpoint of, of public public interest. Because remember, when was the last time you heard about that legislation? Um, we had coverage for it for about two weeks. But after the legislation is written and gets signed by the president, <coughs> there's, I think, 1,200 or so uh, rules that have to be written on the basis of that legislation uh, by the regulatory bodies. And those rules, nobody really understands them except the lobbyists, 1,200 of them, the people who have a direct interest in one of those rules. And the only other people who might understand them is committee staff, but the committee staff are about to go to work for these lobbyists. And by this time, the press has completely lost interest, and there's nobody covering this. So it's just, the, the process is, is when, when Richard Durbin, I quote him in the book saying, of the banks, frankly, they own the place, meaning the Senate, he's not kidding. There's nobody else there but the banks. 
when it comes time to write this legislation. And the banks are probably the most powerful lobbyists on Capitol Hill, but this works really no matter what the issue is. That there is, a, every once in a while, because of some crisis, there'll be a lot of attention from the press, but by and large, it all happens without much attention. And the most powerful interests get what they want, <coughs> because that's who funds our elections. You, it, it, you know, I, I, I'm a columnist for the nation. So during the health care bill, everybody was writing in the nation, Barack Obama should go into their, to these districts and tell these people they better vote for his health care bill, or he's not going to support them for, uh, to be reelected. And y you have to explain that it doesn't really matter if Barack Obama supports you for re-election. That's not who funds your campaign. In the olden days, Franklin Roosevelt could tell uh, congressmen, you're not going to get any party support. Lyndon Johnson could do a lot of this, too. Barack Obama can't do that. Campaigns are self-funded by the very people that the government <coughs> is regulating. And so no one has any interest in taking them on. This is actually clearest if you think about the media business. Um, I came to speak here, I guess it was around the time of uh, what liberal media, um, after McCain-Feingold was passed. And everybody was very surprised that Congress passed a, any kind of significant campaign legislation. And by the way, that reminds me that the problems I described got much, much worse while I was writing the book because of Citizens United. So now uh, the money is even more powerful than it was when I was describing this process. Um, because it, it, it can act without any responsibility at all. It can be laundered through the U.S. Chamber of Commerce for instance, or Carl Rove's organization, or organizations like that that are spreading up. <coughs> but anyway, um, if you remember McCain-Feingold, you, you probably won't remember this, um, that one of the pieces of McCain-Feingold failed. There were three, p three parts to it, two of them passed, one of them failed. The one that failed was the part that said that um, television stations had to sell candidates uh, airtime at their lowest rates. So, they had the power to take on all the interests except the media companies. <coughs> Why? Because they campaigned through the media. At the same time, when Bob Dole was running for president, he uh, the the Congress voted to give away the spectrum to the media company to the to the broadcast companies uh, for free, even though it was valued at seventy billion dollars, and everybody back then was still worried about the uh, deficit. And uh, and Dole wanted to make a stick about this, and somebody came to him and said, Bob. Where do you think you're going to be running for president? Who do you think is going to be carrying your campaign? Shut up. And, and, and the issue was dropped. Uh, it always, I, I can never resist asking this question. And maybe someone in this audience will get the answer. It's, it's kind of a trick question. I promise. I'm warning you. But during the entire time that the uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996 was being debated in Congress, which went on for about a year, it was never once mentioned on ABC, NBC, or CBS evening news. Not once. Those words were never spoken. Uh, it was spoken once by Ted Koppel in the olden days when we had a Ted Koppel. And it was said once on prime time. Once on prime time. Who said it? No. Who said it? Prime time. Prime time. And anyway, John Stewart, he wasn't around. 96. Lisa Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see that the, pow <coughs> the power of media companies is, is, is an example I think we can all relate to as it relates to Congress. And that power of media companies is the power of the banks, oil companies, uh, insurance companies, whatever. That's how the system works. Now, traditionally, and according to democratic theory, 
we rely on the media to make us aware of these things so that we can change them. Two big problems today. One is, as now, like I'm, I, I, I foreshadowed this, so I don't have to go into great detail at the beginning of my remarks. One is, is the collapse of the model, of the business model for the serious mainstream media, for newspapers, which provide the bloodstream of information to television and radio and so forth. We're losing it at an alarming rate, and at a rate that we're not going to be able to save it. I mean, I, I could come up with schemes. I've been to a few commission meetings, and, and Alex has spent a lot more time on this than I have. Um, but all of the, nobody knows how to save the business model. Nobody knows how to do that. There are ways to save, uh, uh, to save what the business model is supporting, or in the past has supported, but they all involve people acting in ways that they would have to be acting already, and in terms with a with a sense of crisis, and they're not happening. Foundations are not doing it. Universities are not doing it. Um, the companies themselves are not changing their behavior. In, in these ways uh, quickly enough. And so we're losing, I don't know, roughly 10% of this, of this reporting, editing, uh, uh, believable, it's not fact-checked, but it's professional uh, apparatus a year. 10% a year, approximately. Um, and, it, and if, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but last year, uh, w w the recession <coughs> in... Um, and media advertising is over, so everybody's numbers are way up, except newspapers. <coughs> newspapers went down, again, even as every single other form of media advertising went up. So this is not coming back. The, the New York Times, I mean, the paywall went into effect this week, we'll see. But right now, a New York Times print reader is worth between 10, 10 and 20 times what a New York Times uh, online reader is. So even though they have almost 20 million readers online and fewer than a million subscribers in print, they still make more money from print than from online, and that is not going to change for a very long time. Certainly not in enough time to save newspapers. And again, those numbers are not really going up either. That, that advertising is going elsewhere. Uh, digital advertising is not going to newspapers. So the business model is dead. and. Like I said, nobody really knows where this leads, but I think it leads to about a third to a half of the reporting capacity that we had, say, seven years ago. <coughs> At the same time, that void is being filled by two kinds of news. One is Charlie Sheen and Lindsay Lohan. It was ever thus. <coughs> We've always had it. It's pointless to complain about. But it, never, it was never of this scope. It, it was. It was. It, it never grabbed this much attention. It was never this powerful. Um, I watched John Stewart this morning before I the car came to take me to the airport, and he was reporting on um, NBC uh, on on how GE paid made fourteen billion dollars in the United States and paid zero taxes, and he wanted to make fun of NBC for um, for uh, not reporting it because they're still partially owned by GE, and he showed what they were reporting. And I actually can't, it was so stupid I can't even remember it. But it was so stupid I can't remember it. And that's, that's on NBC News. Th this this, this um, nightly news, this effect on both the conservative side and on the frivolous side bleeds into the mainstream media. And as it shrinks, 
it still allows for more and more of its space to be taken up by frivolousness. Um, and so we, the losses are actually bigger than I'm describing merely by numbers. And then second, of course, is the power of Fox News and talk radio. 40 million people uh, in America say they get their news from talk radio, which is double the number of people who say they get it from ABC, NBC, and CBS Evening News combined. Um, Fox News made uh, $500 million last year. That number keeps going up. It is a successful enterprise. It has doubled the uh, in prime time. It has doubled, doubled the audience of CNN, uh, more than double the audience of, of MSNBC. Uh, and Fox News is not a news station. It is a political operation that purposely lies. I mean, there are other, there are conservatives out there, and some of them are good and some of them are bad, but most of them care about getting facts right so that they can then make their arguments. Fox News doesn't care. Fox News will show, will give you a report on a demonstration in Wisconsin and show you footage of Florida because the Florida footage makes the point that they want to make in California and Fox News and, and it doesn't. Fox News will show you a demonstration that Fox News helped organize where Glenn Beck is speaking but not enough people have showed up at and they will show you footage of another demonstration where there are a lot of people there. <laughs> this, I'm not making these up obviously. And of course there's, there's is it, it's not a coincidence that 24% uh, of Americans think that Barack Obama was born in Kenya, or they think he's a Muslim. One of the most interesting statistics in this country is that more people think that he's trying to impose Islamic law in the United States than think he's a Muslim. He's a Christian who wants to impose <laughs> Islamic law in the United States. Um, and, and again, if you look carefully at the data, uh, the more you watch Fox News, the more misinformed you are, etc. But this is purposeful. You know, David Frum is quoted in my book saying, we started out thinking that Roger Ailes works for us, and now we find that we all work for Roger Ailes. Um, it's much more like, I mean, I there's no word for it yet, what Fox News is, but it's a lot, it's a lot more like Berlusconi's operation in Italy than it is like, say, MSNBC, which has a slant to its news in prime time. So to bring you back to my original point, and I could go on about this stuff for days, you know, the media part of it, and I'd be happy to if you ask me. Um, but to bring me back to my original point, if you look at it from the perspective of being elected as a progressive president of the United States, and you have a complex program of trade-offs, you know, healthcare is, is, very, is a very difficult problem. Same with all of these, all three of these issues that I focus on are very complicated problems. They require people to, like, understand the issues that, where there's winners and losers and you win some and you lose some in certain different, you know, in certain areas. and. Um, and yet you are faced with a, a system where, A, it's unbelievably easy to obstruct what you're trying to do uh, by a small minority, but B, you've got a media that takes your health care bill and says, well, this is really about death panels for grandma. You're, you're trying to kill grandma. And you, and, you, and you try to do cap and trade, and you say, well, this is the government telling you uh, <coughs> that, uh, that they they're going to control your th thermostat. You're not allowed to control your own thermostat. And you do uh, financial regulation, and you have a newscaster, this guy Rick Santelli, uh, leading a chat of people about how terrible it is that uh, some people are paying other people's mortgages, and it's bailout. I actually, I'm kind of mad about that. I've been paying a fixed 
30-year mortgage for a long time. I pay a higher rate than I have to. And my money, you know, I was responsible. And other people were irresponsible. And gonna buy. I don't like it. But the idea that this is a newscaster who's leading this chant, which leads to the creation of the Tea Party, and then the same newscaster goes on just recently, goes on Meet the Press, and compares uh, the financial situation of the states, he was defending Scott Walker, to 9-11. He says the, the, the red ink that these states face is like a financial 9-11, and so it's necessary to take these extraordinary steps that Walker's taking. This is on Meet the Press. This is the example of the uh, corruption that Fox News and talk radio have brought to our public discourse, bleeding into our um, mainstream media. I'll give you one more little example of this, and then I'll stop. Uh, here's another question. Uh, it's not quite a trick question. Who was the most? Who was the single most booked guest on Meet the Press in 2009? John McCain. Close. Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich is uh, holds no official position in the government. He's he's a spokesman for Fox News, paid by Fox News, as are every single uh, Republican political candidate who are not in public office right now, except Mitt Romney. Um, but he holds no position. He's the ex-Speaker of the House. <coughs> the Speaker of the House in 2009, Nancy Pelosi, was never on Fox News. I mean, never on Meet the Press in 2009. If you add up all the other ex-Speakers of the House in all of human history, although most of them are dead, <laughs> none of them have ever been on Meet the Press. <coughs> so Newt Gingrich was on Meet the Press nine times in 2009. And the speaker, the actual speaker was on and never on, and no other ex-speaker has ever been on. And the man is crazy. <laughs> the man thinks that uh, Barack Obama is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, a representative of a secular socialism whose view of the world grows out of, it's, Dinesh, it's the, the Dinesh D'Souza argument, that his father was an anti-colonialist, uh, I forget what tribe. Zulu. Zulu, yeah. And that's, and that's his explanation for what Barack Obama is, is guiding his foreign policy. That's the man who, with no official position at all, was the most invited guest on the most prestigious news station, news program in America. I submit it's very hard to govern a country in, under these circumstances. And that's why I, I would argue that that if you are elected on, I mean, you, if you if you're president, and you're elected on a tax plat uh, a platform of giving taxes tax breaks to the rich. That's not that difficult. You're not going to meet that much resistance, and you can take the country to war pretty easily too under very murky circumstances. But if you're elected on a program that is designed to redistribute some degree of power and wealth to people who don't have it, and this involves complex trade-offs of policies that require attention and explanation. And uh, and a fair Dewey-eyed discussion, well then it, it's just not going to work out for you. And so, whereas I I could criticize a awful lot of decisions Barack Obama's made, and he's disappointed me in a lot of ways. Um, the real problem is not Barack Obama. The problem is the system that will not allow for progressive governance. Okay, I'm done. Thank you. Um, <coughs> well, instead of asking a question, I'm going to you know we're, 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 we're we don't have a lot of time. Sorry. I just would like to point out that although everything I think that you said is true, um, 
I think it is also very important to bear in mind that this country did elect Barack Obama once. The country is, I think, likely to re-elect Barack Obama. Uh, and it is a country that has, despite, I think, all the things that you described, uh, a history also of, uh, of seemingly having some resistance to being utterly manipulated after over a period of time anyway. I think my point, I guess, that I'm trying to make is that just because <coughs> George Bush had all these, uh, these elements of power, he was not able to leave office as anything but a man who was considered a pariah. And, uh, and, and Barack Obama was elected president um, by that same country that was you know, subject to Fox News and had a, all of the things that, uh, that I think you quite rightly described. All I'm saying is that I don't think that that this country has ceded its ability to make up its own mind. And for instance, Meg Whitman, despite spending $160 million of her own money, could not get elected governor of California. Um, that's not insignificant, it seems to me, in, in light of what you're saying. This is not to say that I don't think what you're talking about is, um, is, is, is true. But I guess I can't, it, it, if I thought that it was the only truth, I would be so depressed I wouldn't be able to get out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> okay, with that, let me open it to, uh, to, to questions. Yes. Um, uh, Theda Scotchpole, the Harvard political scientist, gave a talk uh, the other day, and she's working on a book about the Tea Party, and she made a kind of interesting point. Um, she said that when, in, in the course of her uh, research on this book, and she's gone to many Tea Party meetings and met with all kinds of people, do people, or the people who are active in the Tea Party are very sophisticated about the political system, mm -hmm. how bills get passed, who you have to talk to on a state level, on a local level. But their sense of policy is basically completely misinformed by their kind of constant exposure to Fox News. But she said that on the other hand, um, uh, you know, people on the left tend to be very well informed about policy but think that governing is just about giving a good speech. Uh, do you think that's a fair distinction? I do. Um, uh, Theta is one of the people that, that this, this book began as a 17,000 word article on the nation, and then they organized a group of responses, and she was one of the responders, mm -hmm. and I was honored by that. Um, and she, she actually said, sound kind of like Alex, and, you know, if this were true, I, I, I would have to give up, mm -hmm. but fortunately it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'm actually, this book is kind of a, I've been working on a 600-page history of American post-war American liberalism, and what you said reminds me of a couple of not-so-distant not pasts where uh, there's one where Tip O'Neill goes to see Jimmy Carter and explains to him why there are all these problems with the bills that he's trying to pass and, and, uh, and why he's got to give in to this congressman and give this congressman his water project. <coughs> And Carter says to um, O'Neill, oh, don't worry. When I talk to them, I'm sure they'll see the wisdom of my position. <laughs> and and O'Neill says he wanted to throttle his neck <laughs> because of the arrogance. But it's a typical kind of arrogance. Mm -hmm. Now, there's another example here, uh, which is a counterexample, just as you can take this too far, which is that there's a famous meeting where all these single-payer groups went to see Hillary Clinton. And they said, okay, let's do single-payer, you know, at the very beginning of the Clinton administration. And Clinton said, all right, who do you have? 
And they said, what do you mean, who do we have? You, your husband's president. Go out there and sell this thing. And she said, get out of my office. Get out of my office and come back when you have what we need. Right. So you can overlearn this lesson, and, 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 but you need to know it. And you, I think it's basically true. If you, to, to take this in a direction that I usually avoid, if I had one single criticism of Barack Obama, it's that the guy who spoke so beautifully during the campaign and who moved us so many different times in so many different ways, has not shown up since he became president. He showed up after um, Arizona. That's it. Um, the, the rhetorical power of the presidency is considerable. Ronald Reagan accomplished things that were impossible to accomplish before Ronald Reagan decided to accomplish them. No one imagined that he was going to be able to move the system as far rightward as he did. Um, George Bush did it under other circumstances with 9-11. Uh, and it seems to me Obama um, has, has overlearned that lesson the same way, uh, 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 he, uh, not the same way. O Obama has overlearned this. So Obama is now, he, he'll, he'll take whatever deal is on the table. Um, uh, I refer to it in the book as, well, if you can't get the whole hog, take the ham sandwich. Um, it's, it's a quote of an old Chicago Paul who was one of Obama's um, mentors. And, and he hasn't tried to move the system. And so, yes, I am generally, I, 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 it sounds funny when I say this, but I'm by far and away the most conservative person in the nation. And, <laughs> and I spend my life saying, oh, what a great idea. How can you possibly institute that? Let's talk about what will actually work and, and actually help the people we claim, on whose side we claim to be. Um, and so I'm, I'm enormously reluctant to say that Obama's been overly pragmatic. But he hasn't tried, he hasn't used his, both his rhetorical power and the power of the presidency to move the system. And I just don't get why. I mean, she pointed out that he has never actually explained the Health Care Act to the mm -hmm. American public. You know, I, I got a raise from Brooklyn College that disappeared. Uh, you know, for the second half of last year, my check went down a little. It, it's, it goes into the bank. And I, I thought like I was in trouble, like they cut my salary. It turns out I had a tax cut that no one told me about. Uh, majority of American people think their taxes have gone up under Barack Obama. They went down because they decided it would be more effective to give people their tax cuts in their paychecks because then they would spend it rather than giving it to them as a big <coughs> check that they would put in the bank. Nobody ever mentioned this. Can you imagine the arrogance of expecting Americans to support you for your tax cut that you won't bother to tell them about? It's really shocking. Uh, th thanks so much, Eric. I, uh, you have these broad themes. I'm going to ask a very tiny question because I, some the themes are built on these little building blocks, and also people talk about the causality, why this happened, and one of the things you did went by very fast, and it's of the variety about why things happen. You were talking about the part of the financial reform bill that didn't get enacted. Yeah, uh, giving away the. The, the airwaves. And uh, you threw out very quickly the idea that... Giving away the airwaves is different than... It's a telecommunications. But no, but giving away the airwaves was separate. The part that didn't get enacted was the part that said you had to sell candidates uh, television time at your cheapest rates. That's the part that was killed. Ah, okay. okay. I'm corrected, but that doesn't answer my question. Uh, just my mistake. And you made like a dialogue with Bob Dole who said he's... But that was the Telecommunications Act. That's back in the mid-90s. That's, that's when the Telecommunications Act was passed that was in exactly what Eric said, which was an absolute giveaway to the networks 
of their of the spectrum. But that was not the same as the financial reform. Okay, and I've confused the two. Okay. But I still have Thanks my sorry. question. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Ask the question. Which was the I assume sort of imaginary make a point dialogue that someone goes to Dole and said, You can't be for this because yes. who's going to cover your campaign? That very shorthand baffles me. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, the sense of it is true or it's not true. But when you tell people that's the way things work, who was going to cover his campaign? If he did something that infuriated the media companies and their corporate owners, his campaign was, was going to be covered differently. This is before Fox News when we've seen unscrupulous networks. Well, I mean, there is, I'm not sure what you were saying. Well, well yes. I, I, I don't think that large corporations that own media companies are immune to the same pressures that all large <coughs> corporations act under. Um, is, it, is it irrelevant? I mean, th th there, there was testimony over the fact it's still disputed. We don't really know what happened, although a lot of people heard this story before it was ever reported, and I tend to believe it, that it was the president of GE who instructed NBC News to call Florida for George Bush. Because GE uh, did not want to pay the, um, the EPA's, uh, the EPA had, had, had instructed GE to clean up the Hudson River of the PCPs that mm -hmm. it had dumped. It was going to cost billions and billions of dollars. And GE didn't want to pay it. And so, uh, according to a lot of witnesses, although it was denied before congressional hearings, although not under oath, uh, the president of GE went to the desk and said, call it for Bush right now. I am, I, you know, I'm your boss. Do it. That's sort of the grossest, grossest example of how, um, how you, uh, how uh, these corporations um, the power that they... Let, let, let me, if, if I may address what Please. you're talking about. The organization that was, I think, at that time, and is still to a degree, but then especially the most powerful lobbying organization in America was the National Association of Broadcasters, which is the professional group that represents every television station in America. A gigantic part of the power of this group is the power to uh, give attention to political people on a local level. These are not ah, just the NBC, local level. but this, these are net, these are these are more members of the same organization. They're all getting the camp, they're all getting advertising from from the, the from the political figures. And I think that you can be quite sure that the prospect of Bob Dole campaigning without the sympathetic interest in covering at a local level, especially <coughs> Uh, his campaign was something that he paid a lot of attention to. This is this is a this is an organization that had the reputation of being the biggest bully Thank boys in all of Washington, and they pulled no punches and used all their power. And as Eric said, it was an absolute travesty. This is the most important piece of broadcasting legislation in a generation, and the network news utterly ignored it. It was in the New York Times. It was in other. Wall Street Journal, places like that, but on network television news, it did not even happen. That's a on all fours answer. Thank you. Yes. I tend to be of the school of <coughs> not being able to figure out why I should get up in the morning, actually. And um, 
I was reading, heard something recently about people writing books beautifully outlining the problems and then offering solutions that are totally in, um, inadequate to the problem. So you didn't do that. But um, I just wondered if there's any reason why I should get up in the morning. <laughs> you know, uh, I was interviewed for that piece and they, they didn't use my clothes. And it reminds me that actually one of the times I spoke here was for the book that I was interviewed for where I did give a solution where all the reviews just said how stupid my solution was <laughs> <laughs> and, and ignored the entire book that I had spent four years writing. I was, I was actually tried, I tried as a thought experiment to solve the Lippmann-Dewey conundrum, which I've written a, an awful lot about in, in almost all my books. And everyone said, oh, what a stupid idea. And I just said, this is a stupid idea, but let's see what it would look like if we could ever solve it. And everybody said, yeah. I'm Actually, sorry, it was reviewed what's by... That, what's that conundrum? Oh, God. Don't we don't have time. I look it up. I Google it. But I will point out that the person who, who, the person who attacked my book for its stupid solution was Rick Burke, who is now the uh, Washington uh, bureau chief of the New York Times. Right, he's the national editor. National editor of the New York Times, and he said, uh, "And I was, and I was doing actually what I'm doing today. Where, and 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 what I would respond in a broad way to Alex's earlier point, which I, I don't agree, I don't disagree with, but I would say yes, the country will probably reelect Barack Obama and did elect him once and and discredited Bush, but my answer would be, what do they get for it? Yeah." It's the, it's, the, it's the country is not the problem, the system is the problem. And, and when I wrote this book about democracy and foreign policy that got this terrible review in the New York Times from Rick Burke, he said, well, Alterman is not, um, he's not critiquing democracy, he's explaining democracy. So that the problems that I'm pointing out are somehow inherent in democracy. But it's simply not true. Other countries do not fund their campaigns the way we do. Uh, money is always going to be powerful in politics. There's always going to be, if you're rich and you're, and you're, or you're a big corporation, you're going to do better than if you're some poor slug. But there's a degree that we've allowed it to take place in this country that doesn't have to be that way. And so, you know, if, if it's true, there's no reason to get up in the morning if you expect to win. People always say to me, how do you get up in the morning? Why, you do, why do you bother doing what you're doing? You could make more money on Wall Street. And, and it's true, I don't expect to win, but I don't, I don't expect things to get worse and worse and worse. I do think, or if they're going to get worse, they don't have to get as bad as they were otherwise going to get. And so there are, it, it's, as I said, it's kind of a miracle that um, Barack Obama got elected somehow. And I was so pleased on election night that my daughter could see this and she'll grow up in a world where such things are possible when I didn't, and none of us did. Um, but, uh, but... But that doesn't, just the fact that, that they're always going to end up winning, that money is always going to be powerful, that the Rupert Murdochs of the world are always going to be uh, more important than the I.F. Stones of the world, uh, is not a reason not to make the, try to make them less important and try to make the good guys more Unfortunately, we're at the end of our time. Eric, thank you, man. Thank You're you. You're always welcome.